0: Well, in the Christmas season, there are some unwritten Christmas traditions from family to family and even from person to person. And when those families' traditions clash, those family traditions or those Christmas traditions often become laws, right? Let me just set the tone for a few of those things. I mean, can we put up Christmas decor before Thanksgiving or after? Big question. My favorite meme of the season is the turkey spurring Santa and saying, not yet. Can we do that? The shopping men begin on Christmas Eve? That's the day, by the way. Or did it begin last Christmas, the 26th of December of last year? When can we begin shopping? Santa or no Santa? Eggnog or wassail? Elf on the shelf or no elf on the shelf? Kind of creepy to me. Real Christmas tree from the Christmas farm for you purists or Christmas tree from Home Depot or just a fake tree? Which one? And then how many trees? One big tree for your whole house or one per room or one per person? Which one is it? New parents. New parents. This is important. Do you get, after 30 to 35 years of Going to mom and dads or going to family, do you finally, because you have a kid now, get to stay at home and have Christmas anew with just your family and then the promise of going to your family after? I would encourage you to do that. Fifteen years from now, I'm not. If I got grandkids. Can you watch football games the day of Christmas or do you have to watch It's a Wonderful Life for the 48th Time? Men, must you risk life and limb to put up your Christmas lights for your wife or not? I'm in trouble now. And the big one for me, is Die Hard a real Christmas movie or is it not? And some of you young people have no idea. You need to go watch it. A lot of unwritten Christmas laws, right? There's also, though, I think… A written Christmas laws, kids, particularly when it comes to gifts, anybody know that law? When it comes to receiving gifts, were you naughty or are you nice? Are you good or are you bad? For be, you got to be good for goodness sake, right? Have you been good this Christmas? Is that tied into if you get more gifts or not? You know, the philosopher kid asked more questions though, right? How good is good enough? How bad is too bad? You see, when we come to Christmas Eve in a church service and we're thinking about the gift, the gift of God's Son, does God give that gift based on if we're naughty or if we're nice? Is there some arbitrary way in which God decides, which begs the question, kids, some of you that you're asking today, have I been good enough to get the gift? Have I not been good enough to get get the gift tomorrow morning? And the reason you're asking that question is this. You've not been perfectly good, have you? Maybe you're better than your brother. Maybe you're better than your sister. Or your mom and dad, and mom and dad, maybe you're better than your kids, but are you good enough? And the real question, though, that you start asking maybe tonight or tomorrow morning isn't if I've been good enough or if I've not been good enough, but it's this, I want to be careful. I need to know more about the gift giver. What is the gift giver like? Is the gift giver strict? Is the gift giver harsh or is the gift giver generous? Is the gift giver gracious? Is the gift giver merciful? When we come to Christmas and we look at the gift of Jesus Christ, we have to ask the question how does God give us this gift? What is God like? Is he harsh? Is he cruel or is he generous and gracious and merciful to us who don't deserve the gift? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. It's page 944 in the Bible next to you on a chair if you would need it. Romans 8 verses 3 and 4, just two verses today. And we're going to answer the question, what kind of God, what kind of gift giver is our God. As you turn there, the book of Romans have told us some things. If you know the book of Romans, early on it says, there's no one who's done good. No one. Not even one. But then it also reminds us that God gives good gifts even to law breakers. The gift of His Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. It's going to tell us why we need Christmas, and then it's going to tell us what God did about it. And last, it's going to point us to the ultimate reason for Christmas. Let me read it, short and sweet. Chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, for God has done, note that, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He contemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Can I tell you the first thing, the first truth of Christmas that you have to know? See, the incarnation or Christmas reminds us that we fall short of God's standard. Christmas, be encouraged at Christmas. Christmas ought to remind you that you fall short of God's standards. Do you see it there, the law? Do you see in verse 3 where he says the law? See, God's law is good. He has a standard. It tells us more. His law tells us more about His character, and it tells us more about His expectations for us. But when coming to face with the law, what happens is we realize that we don't measure up, that we fall short of God's standards. And so the law tells us our need for something outside of ourselves. The law tells us our need for God. One guy said it this way, God's law is like, imagine this, okay? God's law is like the light in the room that reveals how dirty the floor is but it's not the broom that sweeps up the dirty floor. The law reveals. See, the problem is not with God's holy law in this passage. It's not a problem of the law. Note the phrase in verse 3, we were weakened by the flesh, by our own flesh. There's no problem with God's law. The problem is with us, the law of breakers. We're on the naughty list. We're weakened by the flesh. Here's what that means. It means that we are spiritually sick and so we reject God's law. When I was in college, I was a counselor at a Christian sports camp called TBRM in New Braunfels. Maybe you've heard of it. I was a counselor there in college and um, we had different sports that the kids would play. They'd learn about Jesus. They'd play different sports and I was the golf coach, which meant that I took about 13 kids in a 15-passenger van as a 22-year-old. I don't know if I want my kids going in that van. And we took a van to the golf course, a nine-hole golf course in New Braunfels, and it was about five miles, six miles from camp. And so every week we would take all these kids all week long, and the payoff for the kids after instruction all week was Friday. They got to play nine holes. And I remember one week... We were on about the sixth hole, and this kid, Will, he was a great little golfer, he was a good kid, and I remember we were on the sixth hole, and he says this, he says, my throat hurts, and he starts doing this with his hand. And I said, okay, well, keep me posted. We get to the seventh and eighth hole, and the sixth, these holes are way in the back of this golf course. And it's worse, he's coughing, he's having trouble breathing, and we get on the ninth green, and I can see the van out in the parking lot, and Will says to me, I ate a cookie for lunch, and it may have had peanuts in it, and I'm allergic to peanuts. Lunch, it's like 4 p.m. Listen, I'm 22 years old. I don't know about kids' health. I don't know much. But I remember them talking about EpiPens and things like this, and I picked this kid up, and I ran to the van and I got the other 13 kids in and I went way too fast back to camp where I knew there was an EpiPen and I got this kid to the nurse and he was okay. But later on that night, the nurse came to me and said, that was too close. I got a question for you about the story. Was there anything inherently wrong with that cookie that over 300 kids ate for lunch? There's nothing inherently wrong with the cookie. What's the problem? The problem is Will's body is allergic to peanuts. He has a sickness toward peanuts, and he rejected what was in his body. This is the way the law is. In the same way, the law of God is good. There's nothing at all wrong with it. What's the problem? The problem is us. The problem is our sin. Our sin, we are sick, and we reject the law of God. Kids, you know this, right? How many of you, your parents, actually put the Christmas gifts underneath the tree before Christmas morning or whoever gives gifts? Does anybody get weeks in advance gifts under your tree? Let me tell you why the gift givers don't do that. If they were to do that, they would say to you, don't… Open the gifts. Don't touch the gifts. Don't take the tape and pull the gifts off in the middle of the night and then repackage them. Don't do it. And what would you want to do? What we all want to do. You know why mom and dad know that? You know why they don't put Christmas gifts out? Because they did it when they were kids too. We can't do it. This is the problem. We've seen this problem. If you've been with us in the fall, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. And we saw that they re-went back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the wall, but then they had to rebuild their own spiritual lives. And what was the problem? The problem was that they had gotten themselves very far from God and they were doing things that they shouldn't. And then they come back and they confess their sin. And then they say, we're going to walk in God's ways. We're going to walk in God's laws. And what do they do? They do it for a little while and then what do they do? They revert right back. They sin against God, God, and they walk their own way. They walk according to their own law. And then what do they do? The cycle continues. They confess, they turn away, and then they go right back. They can't follow God's law. They've got a problem, and when you come to the end of the Old Testament, people aren't asking for more laws. You know what they're asking for? They're asking for a savior who is Christ the Lord. They're asking for Messiah, a Savior, that can save them from their sins, not just sacrifices that can cover their sins and walk back. They're looking for a Messiah because they know their need. They know that they don't measure up. So Christmas reminds us that we fall short. But it also reminds us that God has done something. Look at the next phrase. For God has done what the law couldn't do by what? What does it say? By sending from heaven to earth, this broken place, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's what God has done. So your second thought this morning at Christmas is this. Christmas recalls not only how we fall short, but Christmas recalls God's gracious initiative and intervention in our hopeless condition. Do you see the words, the first couple of words of verse three? God did what we couldn't do. God showed up. Can I tell you, when we think about Christmas miracles, we often think of the virgin birth, and that's true. It's very true, but the first Christmas miracle is not the virgin birth. The first Christmas miracle is that God would take lawbreakers like us and come near and do something about it that God would act on our behalf where we couldn't. That's the first miracle of Christmas, amen? How did he do it? He sent his son. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus Becoming a man, eternal God, becoming a man, God sending God in the flesh. And notice what Paul says. Notice how careful Paul is in the way that he talks about Jesus becoming a man in human flesh. God becoming a man. What does it say? It says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does it say in sinful flesh? It does not. If so he would be under the curse and he would not be worthy as a sacrifice for our sin he would not be a worthy savior he would not be god if he has sin it says in the likeness of sinful flesh meaning he is human but he is divine that he is untainted by sin like all of us are that's how he did it john 1 says it this way perhaps you know this verse in christmas 114 and 117 This is what the Apostle John says, and the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And note verse 17 as it relates to falling short of God's standard of the law. What does it say about Jesus? For the law was given through a man, Moses. He walked down from Mount Sinai, but grace and truth came. Through Jesus Christ, more than the law, the fulfillment of the law, Jesus came in grace and truth. Aren't you glad? That it's not just the justice of God that is demanded from you, but God sent his son to be gracious to you. See, Christmas reminds you that God showed up in our hopeless condition, that he's willing to move toward and heal the sick because of sin like you and like me. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received a gift at Christmas that you really didn't deserve? Maybe you were on the naughty list all year and you didn't deserve something and you knew it, and yet you got something incredible anyway. You ever experience that, kids? Ever experience that, adults throughout the year? Where you got something that you didn't deserve, the ultimate thing that you need the most, that you're not deserving of, is the gift of Jesus at Christmas. And yet, what kind of God do you have? Is He harsh? Is He exacting? He's certainly just, but He is gracious to give you what you don't deserve in the gift of His Son. See, the gift of Jesus is certainly not earned, and it is certainly not deserved. It is a gift of His grace to be received. That's what you do with a gift, right? You receive it. You simply receive that gift. We receive that gift by faith in Christ, and we turn from our ways. Can I ask you this morning? in all the seasonal hustle and bustle and all the things, what is your response? What is your response to God's grace sending His Son for you? Is your response, like the shepherds when they leave the manger, is it wonder and worship and witness? Or maybe the message Christmas has just kind of worn off over the years. Can I tell you how to return to the joy, as David would say, of your salvation? David says return to the joy of salvation because he realizes his great need of a God who can forgive him in spite of him. Do you see your sin for what it is and then therefore understand? how miraculous the gift of Jesus is that God would grant you because of your sin. Or maybe it's not wonder. Maybe it's not worship. Maybe it's not witness. Maybe it's not, hey, it's just worn off for me. Maybe it's you just walk away. Maybe you're here this morning because family drug you here and you don't really want to be here and you come to church on Easter and you come to church on Christmas because your family... You've got to do something with God becoming a man. You've got to do something with what he's done for you. Listen, the Bible says it this way in the book of Acts. There is no other name given to men in which you can be saved other than the name of Jesus. That's it. Not your name, not your actions, not Muhammad, not Gandhi, not some spiritual guru, only the name of Jesus. You've got to do something with Jesus. So he shows up at Christmas in a manger in Bethlehem. But his ultimate destination is not Bethlehem. It's not Nazareth. His ultimate destination is Jerusalem, a hill the skull of Golgotha, the cross. The third thought this morning is this, the incarnation ultimately, Christmas ultimately points to Christ's humiliation at the cross for us. Christmas points to one place, to the cross. Note the text. He comes at Christmas in the likeness of Christ Sinful flesh, look at the end of verse three. Why? For, what does it say? Sin. That's why he comes. To do what? To condemn sin in the flesh. That's where Christmas ultimately points. We couldn't save ourselves from sin. We're condemned because of sin. We're condemned because we can't keep the law. But Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ came to die as a sacrifice for our sin. Only God can forgive sins. I can't forgive sins. The law can't forgive sins. Somebody else can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And he's chosen to do that through his son, the God-man. Second Corinthians 5, which we often visit, says it this way, 521, For our sake, note that, for your sake, He made him. God made Christ who knew no sin, none, to be sin. He took on sin, your sin that he didn't deserve to take on. He took on for you so that, here's the reason, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. What does that mean? It means that God declares us right before him, not because we're righteous, not because we're so good. Not for goodness' sake, but for His sake. For our good and His glory. That's what grace is, that's what mercy is, that undeserving people receive the gift of Christ in spite of how far they fall short. See Christmas points us to the cross. One person said it this way, divine aid is needed to meet the divine requirement. So the Father condemns the Son of His love that He may absolve the children of His wrath." That's what Christ did on a cross. You know, we've said at Christmas, kids, listen, that we really don't ultimately deserve the gifts that we get because we're not perfectly good, are we? We don't deserve those gifts, and yet the gift giver acts and is gracious to us, and giving gifts. And guess what about those gifts? Those gifts are free. If you've ever received a gift, that gift is free to you. But is that gift free to the one who gave it? The bigger the gift, and the more you need the gift, the greater the sacrifice. That's exactly what Christ has done for you. If you've ever given a gift, you understand, mom and dad the sacrifice involved in giving gifts of time and money. Grace is free to us, but it is costly to Jesus. But he was willing to sacrifice himself on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin, the guilt of your sin, to forgive you of your sin. That's the kind of gift that Christ is us. And there's not a better gift at Christmas you could receive if you've not received it for your sin. He condemned your sin for you. You stand condemned, but He died in your place. It's interesting, if you know Romans 8, if you know Romans 8, maybe the thing that comes to mind in Romans 8 is not this verse, but it's verse 1. that it says what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. But understand this, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ and who he is and what he's done for you, there is condemnation for your sin. Your sin sits on you. But there's something else. For those of you who know Jesus, verse 4 is a great promise. It means, verse 4, if you look at it, it says, why did he die on a cross, amongst other things, that the law might be fulfilled in us? See, Christ came to fulfill the law, and he did what we can't do. We can't meet God's standards, but he can. And he met God's standards for us, but there's something else about our life It's amazing as we walk this Christian life because we certainly deal with the presence of sin, do we not? See, here's the beauty. Look at verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. See what happens because of Christmas and the cross. Not only is the penalty of sin dealt with The power of sin is dealt with too so that you, if you know Jesus, you can walk with him. You can fulfill the law. You can walk by his spirit. The power of sin no longer has dominion over you, meaning that you can walk with the Lord because you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come so you do have power by his spirit to live this Christian life. Those are beautiful things truths. Christmas shows us our need. Christmas shows us that God did something about that need, and Christmas ultimately points us to the cross. But maybe, man, I, I hate Christmas shopping. I, I saw one, a, a guy in our church yesterday, and I intentionally went to Walgreens so I didn't have to go to Target or Walmart or something big just to get something I forgot from Amazon. I, I, I've grown weary of the season and all the things. I'm not a Scrooge, but I've grown weary of it because it often takes away from the real joy and truth and hope and light of Christmas. Chuck Swindoll says it this way in, in a poem. He wrote about the day after Christmas. Hear this. "'Twas the day after Christmas when all through the place there were arguments and depression. Even mom had a long face. The stockings hung empty and the house was a mess. The new clothes didn't fit and dad was under stress. The family was irritable and the children no one could please because the instructions for the swing set were written in Chinese. The bells no longer jingled. And no carolers came around. The sink was stacked with dishes, and the tree was turning brown. It's an argument for a fake tree, y'all. The stores were full of people returning things that fizzled and failed. And the shoppers were discouraged because everything they bought was now on half sale. sale. T'was the day after Christmas, the spirit of joy was disappeared. The only hope on the horizon, men, was the 12 bowl games at New Year's. Does that feel like your Christmas or after Christmas? It kind of does. We put so much stock in all the things, don't we? And I'm not saying all the things are bad. I'm not saying that there's not worth in those things. And I don't have any great solutions for the experience of Christmas, if you will, in 2023. But I think the reason that Christmas often loses its luster for us is because we're so consumed with the earthly consumerism of the Christmas season and the pressure to do all the things. It's exhausting. It's not only exhausting, but it can drown out the cosmic wonder of what Christmas is really about. The cosmic wonder that God became a man because you couldn't measure up to his standard. And he was willing to take initiative toward you and send what was most precious to him, his son, his eternal son, to live and come in a manger and live a perfect life, but die on a bloody cross for you. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the majesty of Christmas. That's the grace of Christmas. Perhaps today, what little time we have left and tomorrow. Maybe you got shopping to do, but I would tell you and I would encourage you, let's make Christmas more about the incarnation of Jesus. Let's make Christmas more about remembering and recalling what He's done for us through His Son. And maybe that means today, You just take some moments. Maybe tonight you watch the Nativity story or other Christmas movies that bring the tapestry of God's redemptive story back into focus in your Christmas, C3. And maybe tomorrow, dads, moms, before you open Christmas gifts or after, that there's a family devotional in time considering what Christmas is really about, that there's a Recounting of the Christmas story and all it's worth. C3, let's put Christ back into our Christmas today and tomorrow. Let's remember that we certainly fall short, but God showed up. And God did something about it by sending His Son. And let's recount that Christmas ultimately points us to the cross And God's willingness to put His Son on a cross for you and I, to forgive us of our sins, and to purchase a place in heaven for us that we don't deserve and we can't ever earn. That's a great Christmas. Let's put Christ back into our Christmas. Let me pray.